Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today the Canadian Cancer Society's Karen Kuzmich has all the info you need to include a dry February in your life. BC Beverage Licensee's Executive Director Jeff Guignard looks at new drinking recommendations and warning labels on booze. The Credit Counseling Society's President Scott Hanna has some thoughts on buying groceries with credit cards for enhanced loyalty points. Points. And Prepared Corporation CEO Alex Vesna looks at BC's roadside prohibition program and says this could work for the rest of Canada. So let's get started. It is time right now to check in with the folks at the Canadian Cancer Society to talk about, well, Dry February. It's a big annual fundraising event. And here to talk more about it from the Canadian Cancer Society is Karen Kuzmich. Karen, good morning and thanks for joining us today. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about the history of Dry February before we dive into the nuts and bolts of what's going on this year. How long has this been going on, Karen? Dry Feb yeah. started in Ontario um, just in as an Ontario-only program in 2016. But since then, we're happy to say the Canadian Cancer Society has expanded it nationwide. Um, as of 2017. So this is our eighth year running the program. Mm -hmm. And it has evolved. Was it originally back when you started it in Ontario only, Karen? Was it designed to be a fundraiser right from the get-go, or has that sort of evolved out of just dry February? A core mandate of the Canadian Cancer Society is to both educate and empower people to take action to reduce their cancer risk. Mm -hmm. And the ways that in which we can do that, of course, is to raise funds for um, leading cancer research, helping us push forward healthy public policy, as well as supporting our nationwide support and information services for people affected by cancer. So, yes, uh, DryFab has um, always been an opportunity to raise awareness about the link between alcohol use and cancer. And it has very much evolved into a very strong uh, fundraising campaign for us. And it, we're really great how much traction it's getting and, mm -hmm. and a lot of chatter about it. Indeed. So give us the mechanics, Karen. How does one actually raise money by not drinking? Because that's sort of what it boils down <laughs> to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, DriveFab is a really, it's actually a very unique kind of uh, fundraising challenge because it's an opportunity to raise funds for great organizations while you don't do something. Mm -hmm, yeah. So the challenge, of course, is to go dry for the month of February to, to not drink alcohol. And the way people can do that, it's really easy uh, for the mechanics of it, like you say, is go to dryfeb.ca and you can register yourself as a participant or you can register as a team. Right. So maybe your whole radio station wants to set up a team and you could raise funds collectively, which makes it a, a lot more fun that way. But right there on that page on drivefeb.ca, you can register. And then there's tools and easy templates and sheets you can use for reaching out to friends and family and coworkers to ask for those donations to support what DryFab is trying to do, which is increase awareness about the link between alcohol consumption and cancer, as well as raising funds for the Canadian Cancer Society to continue its work doing research, providing healthy public policy initiatives, and of course, 
funding our national support services of information for people with cancer and their families. Mm -hmm. It's a great cause. Indeed. And as of this morning, according to drivefeb.ca, and I've got it up on my screen in front of me, 12,859 people are going dry, as are 379 teams. And so far, 387,313 bucks has been raised. And we're not even in February yet. That's a pretty good beginning, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. Last year, drivefeb raised 3.8 3.8 million. Wow. But as we get closer to February, right, we're expecting more and more folks to sign up. So our goal is to raise even more um, because that's going to help the Canadian Cancer Society make a difference in the lives of people affected by cancer and, and to learn more about it. So it's just getting going. So we want to encourage every all your listeners to go to uh, the challenge on drivefeb.ca and uh, uh, you know, think about joining. Well, you know, as I poke around and, and was doing so, doing my homework, getting ready to talk to you this morning, I came across mm-hmm. something called a golden ticket, Karen. There's a mm-hmm. mulligan involved for, for people <laughs> in dry feb to, for those very special occasions, Valentine's Day, pick a date, pick a reason. You can actually declare a mulligan or a golden ticket and and take a night off. Is that not the case? And obviously, you like to golf. I love it. Uh, yes, I, I very much rely on mulligans when I golf. Uh, <laughs> so yes. do I. A golden ticket is just what you said. It's to be used for social emergencies. So we recognize that there's special events that might be happening in February, weddings, perhaps somebody gets engaged, mm-hmm. and you want to celebrate that perhaps. So the intent behind that is either yourself or you know, your partner, your friend's family can make a contribution that they think is, is uh, relevant to the event, which would allow you to have a night off um, from your alcohol-free challenge. However, we really do hope, and it is very possible, uh, for folks to go alcohol-free for the whole month of February. Sure. And we have lots of tips on that page there to help people get through the month. One of the things that we've learned from the folks in Victoria at the Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse, they've caused a lot of uh, ripples across the country in the past few days with their new uh, revised guidelines for adult Canadians and their drinking habits. They say now uh, recommending two drinks per week would be the maximum in terms of enjoying alcohol virtually risk-free. Anything beyond that, well, now you're into a risk zone, and they are able to connect alcohol to very Various types of cancers in terms of exposure to alcohol increases uh, your risk of certain types of cancers. Can you talk about those cancers specifically that may be affected or uh, come about as a result of alcohol consumption, Karen? Yes, that's an important question, uh, Sterling, that people often uh, talk about. And we're really pleased to have the chance to help people become more aware of that link between alcohol consumption and cancer. Mm -hmm. So from the the global wealth of research uh, that we have about the harms of alcohol and its impact on cancer, we know that alcohol does increase our risk of several types of cancers, including head and neck, breast, colorectal, esophageal, liver, stomach, and pancreatic cancers. Mm. So it's quite the list. Sure. 
And uh, do they tell you, uh, I mean, obviously this has been, uh, the, the science behind this has been going on for quite some time. And uh, is it safe to assume then that risk of those of, of getting or being uh, the possibility of contacting those types of cancer increases, uh, the risk level increases with your, your consumption level? Well, you're, you're right. You're right. You've got the nail on the head there. Um, drinking any type of alcohol in any amount increases your risk of those various types of alcohol. And what we want to hope people remember is that to lower your risk of cancer, it's best not to drink. And those Canada's guidance on alcohol and health outlines those risks of alcohol and it can help you make informed decision about whether you drink and how much if you choose to drink keep your cancer risk as low as possible Mm. by having no more than two standard drinks a week the less alcohol you drink the lower your cancer risk and by way of raising funds, you uh, you 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 register with the uh, with DryFeb.ca. You sign yourself up, or your team, if you've got a group together that uh, wants to do this as a group effort. And sometimes, frankly, having a few teammates or the buddy system, as they like to call it, really is a, a, a terrific way of accomplishing uh, something that may be a bit of a challenge to you individually when you're kind of being egged on by your colleagues. It makes it a little bit easier. It's a joint effort. So once you sign yourself or your team up. Uh, you raise money simply by asking friends and colleagues and clients or whatever to donate to the cause, and they do? That's, it's that simple? It, it's absolutely that simple. And uh, one of the things that we know is you go public. Go public with your challenge. Use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, pick up the phone, talk to people, and let them know, hey, yeah, I'm going to go drive for the month of February. Mm-hmm. And they, you'll find that people really uh, applaud your efforts for doing that, and they want to support the Dry Feb Challenge with a donation, especially when they know that it is uh, a fundraiser where all the donations are going to go to the Canadian Cancer Society to help us further our mission and our work around supporting people with cancer and all those affected. Right, and you may even get a mention on the website because as I'm looking at uh, drivefeb.ca, Karen, there's this a non-ending scroll going uh, right to left of people who have donated anything from $125 to $41.20 and on and on it goes. So uh, that's uh, that's a, just a point of recognition, if, uh, if nothing else. But it's the fact that people are in large numbers. Three million bucks last year, I would imagine the goal in 2023 would be to exceed that number right that is absolutely right because uh all every dollar raised is going to help the canadian cancer society make a difference helping people that are affected by cancer and as i said help us to continue to educate and empower people to take action to lower their risk of cancer so it's really a great news story right so we're we're learning that the less we drink the lower our risk of cancer. So it's a win-win situation, raise money, do something good for yourself, get healthier, Mm -hmm. and uh, have fun along the way. Um, Take up the challenge with friends and family and uh, rethink your relationship with alcohol. And what we have found from people that have participated in the past is that they tend to carry on with those healthier routines that they gotten into for the month of February. So it's not just a one-time thing. The benefits uh, hopefully will carry, carry on for people that participate. 
Indeed. Well, to participate for either as an individual or perhaps with your friends, you simply visit dryfeb.ca, and that's where you get all the details, and they make it awfully darn easy to participate in Dry February. Karen Kuzmich, thanks very much for being with us. We wish you considerable success this February 23. Thank you very much. I'll send you my link for donating shortly. Time to check in with Jeff Ginyard on our program today. Jeff is the executive director of the Alliance of Beverage Licensees of British Columbia, here to talk about, among other things, alcohol warnings. Uh, Jeff, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. So talk to us a little bit about, I saw I was reading a, a story, a news story the other day about uh, this business from the uh, Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse in Victoria and their new recommendations vis-a-vis uh, adult uh, alcohol consumption. They want all Canadian adults to dramatically reduce alcohol intake down to, they say, a couple of drinks a week. And they also want all alcoholic beverages to con- carry warning labels similar to what all tobacco products currently carry. You're uh, quoted in this news article, Mr. Guignard, as saying you don't think alcohol warning labels will work. Why not, Jeff? Yeah, there's lots to talk about here, but sure, let's start with the, the warning labels. And it's, it's interesting how, to an academic, uh, warning labels are often the solution to everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe because they, they spend so much time reading, they assume everyone else will. Uh, consumers tend to react negatively to them, and businesses find it, it messes up their branding. But I, I think the easiest way to look at it is the tobacco industry, since everyone uses it as an example. And sure. they say, oh, look, tobacco consumption has gone down, and it's worked. Uh, tobacco is an $850 billion industry worldwide, and consumers just switch to vaping. If you go to a tobacco company's website, they're telling you they want to get rid of cigarettes. So they just shifted their branding. What I find much more helpful, uh, and, I, and I think we're generally on the same page, they want warning labels to to frighten consumers. We want education, right? I think the question we have to ask is if we want to actually change people's behaviors, what works, right? And what tends to work is education. And I think we have to start much earlier. People don't know what a standard drink is. They don't know the safe amount to consume and how to make responsible choices. Teach it in in schools, right? And let's build consumers who actually have an educated base to make responsible, healthy choices the same way they do with education exercise or eating or anything else they put into their bodies. Right. So as uh, now the uh, education industry has taken up the science that uh, has been offered uh, with respect to tobacco, and it's uh, Mm -hmm. certainly very commonplace in especially high schools to have uh, 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 classes uh, and discussions and open discussions in class about the the negative effects of tobacco on humans. And that's an education process that begins in their early teen years. And you're saying similar education with respect to alcohol and its effects, and that's multiple, should also begin at that same age level. Yeah, I strongly believe that because when studies like this come out, they make some shocking headlines. Uh, and they're, they're always just limited in, in, in what they're looking at, right? I mean, the study is only looking at the potential negative impacts of alcohol consumption. It's not looking at an individual's healthy lifestyle or whatever else they may be doing to contribute to their cancer risk or to reduce their cancer risk, right? I mean, if I don't think anybody was surprised to find out that binge drinking is bad for you or that if you, you shouldn't consume alcohol when you're pregnant. But I also think people are not surprised to think about, you know, if you're eating fast food every single day of your life, you probably have a higher risk of someone who's eating a healthier diet, right? Mm-hmm. So all of that needs to be taken into account. And I, and I think producing educated consumers is the best way to do it. And, you know, you're seeing it already in the marketplace, too. Um, Statistics Canada has a wonderful wealth of information on, on consumption patterns and consumer behaviors. And we found that, yes, during the pandemic, 
you know, consumption went up across the board. It sure did. But yeah, what we also found that if you go back to 2015, not even that long ago, about 30% of Canadians between 18 to 34 years old said they indulged in at least occasional bouts of heavy drinking. By 2021, that 30% had dropped down to 20%. So the reason you're also in the marketplace now seeing tons of low-alcoholic and non-alcoholic options. Right. Education is what works, not trying to frighten people at the point of sale when they've already made the decision if they're going to purchase something or not. Well, there's also a cultural dimension to all of this, Jeff, that was ignored by the scientists involved in producing these uh, new recommendations with respect to alcohol consumption. Now, we had the Cancer Society on our show this morning uh, and talking about their Dry Feb campaign, for example. They're encouraging Canadians right across the land to take a month off and uh, and raise some money for cancer at the same time because there is science which shows a correlation between elevated risk of getting some types of cancer uh, combined with alcohol consumption. So they say, uh, you know, this is a great time to do that. But even in the midst of all of this, the uh, our representative uh, who spoke with us from Toronto earlier this morning, she was terrific too, uh, Karen Kuzmich, also pointed out that you, uh, in, the, in the course of, of being a participant in this, you can get what's called a golden ticket or a mulligan and take a night off in February if, for example, you know, there's a a wedding or you get engaged or it's time for a glass of champagne on Valentine's Day or something like that. So acknowledging the fact that there is a cultural dimension to this as well, which was ignored in the in the uh, the the very dramatic revelations from the Center for Substance Use a few days ago. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. And I, I always say you have to put everything into context, right, into the whole board. Uh, the, the job of the health advocates and the researchers that are looking into the health impacts is to talk about the health impacts, right? Just those. They're not looking at the other studies that show that the glass of wine can lower blood pressure or they're not looking at how alcohol contributes to the economy and uh, what it does for small businesses like pubs and wineries and that contribute to our tourism economy and doesn't consider the 200,000 British Columbians working in alcohol-related industries. Right. doesn't look at the cultural, artistic, or social benefits. So you have to think of all of those things in context. And, you know, cancer is a scourge that I hope we can eliminate in our lifetimes. But you also have to look at those stats. So if you look at the American Cancer Society, for example, they say there's about 75,000 Americans every year who end up getting some form of cancer related to alcohol. 75,000 is a lot of people. It is also 0.004% of the United States population. Mm-hmm. So put it into context and you know, let's focus on educating consumers so they can make healthy, responsible choices holistically, not just in this one area. Interesting stuff. Now, Jeff, let's step back and take a look at uh, what your licensees province-wide and how they're doing this early part of January. How was the holiday season now that it's behind us and some numbers have been crunched? Uh, certainly yeah. better, better this season than the last two years probably put together. What can you tell us? Well, one of the things that I always have to remember and and reassure everyone is that our industry is incredibly resilient. You know, and we have seen over and over and over again, business owners fight through the pandemic to keep their business afloat. The good news from the holiday season, it it is our best time of the year, right? So a lot of folks were able to make some much needed revenue and to be able to keep their business employed or their employees working. Sure. Now the, the, the challenge, though, that we have to put into context always is the pandemic was devastating for the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. We lost about 15% of businesses out there. And a number of businesses that survived did so by taking on massive amounts of debt. We are still paying off those bills. And we have not yet seen the full financial fallout from the pandemic. 
I know of a major pub chain in British Columbia that is on the verge of insolvency because of the debt that they had to take on and the decisions they had to make through the pandemic to get here. So you're going to see more stories about that. And that's the hard part. The good news is, though, is that for those who have made it through, we are looking towards 2023 as a year to finally stabilize, forget of the pandemic, and to fully recover and get back on our feet. You know, if you walk down the street and find any pub, restaurant, bar in your city, they're probably hiring right now. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, because there is the, the, the problem that they seem to be sharing right across the province is a shortage of staff. Yeah, you're, you're, you're bang on, Sterling. It's, it's a serious problem for us. So we employ about 190,000 uh, British Columbians um, on an annual basis, averagely. And it's, you know, we are one of the largest private sector employers in the country. The challenge we have, we're about 10% short of where we want to be. So just imagine if your business is constantly about 10% short of workers every day, every shift. Yeah. And we had some meetings even just with some health officials yesterday. It's interesting. They're seeing it when they go in and do inspections. They're having to remind people to do the extra cleaning, uh, you know, pull out the fridge and clean behind there. And they're like, oh, right, yes, we mean to get to that. We understand if we don't clean that, that's going to lead to problems down the road. But where I find the staff to even, you know, make that part of our regular shifts, right? So it's, it's just constant pressures on those businesses. And you'll see it even as consumers. You know, we're, we're doing our best to put our, our best foot forward, but sometimes we have to keep sections of a pub closed because we can, the kitchen can't handle the extra volume. Right. right? So it's, it's our biggest challenge and our biggest impediment to recovery. And uh, that's why I always say, if you're looking for work right now, we are definitely hiring. Well, compared to the last couple of years and some of the conversations we've had over that time, Jeff, it's a nice problem to have, isn't it? <laughs> well, in a way, yes. I mean, over the, the pandemic, it was, it was rough. I mean, it's pretty grim. Closed. Yeah, we had to lay people off. and It, it, was, it was horrible. So it's from, you know, at least we're operating and we're, we're doing the best we can. Uh, but we're definitely looking for more staff and, and uh, in just all the entire hospitality, tourism, accommodation, liquor industry united in trying to solve those challenges. All right, Jeff Kenyard, thanks very much for this. Always a pleasure, sir. We appreciate the update. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Time to check in uh, with a headline that we saw just the other day in the global uh, the Glacier Papers. British Columbians sleep, slipping rather deeper into debt. Anxiety levels rising as more British Columbians pay only minimum credit card balances. Here to talk more about it is Scott Hanna, president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society of British Columbia. Scott, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, these, uh, th- this headline, of course, is absolutely not news to you and your colleagues at the Credit Counseling Society as you observe this behavior and, and these, uh, these results on a daily basis. And, and I think what we're seeing with inflation, and we're hearing this from many guests, Scott, uh, is that people are resorting to using credit where normally they would have used cash simply because they've run out of cash and yet still need to eat and do other human basics. Well, you know, it's kind of in line with what we've been seeing since August of last year, where the number of people contacting us for assistance has been going up month over month. You know, looking at the number of people reaching out for help this month, it's up 110% versus January of 21, wow. 22, pardon me. Mm-hmm. So it just shows that, you know, the state of where we're at right now, I mean, with, in, with inflation at that was at a near 40-year record high and seven interest rate hikes and likely another one this month. It's created a perfect storm 
to put people in financial difficulty. Right. And, you know, there's another factor as well. Uh, and Leila Kadir, who is a producer of this program, with whom you've already had a conversation, that's why you're with us today, had mentioned to me, we were talking about credit cards and buying groceries on a credit card, for example. She says, well, I do it quite deliberately because my credit card company, uh, it's a loyalty points program, Scott. So if I buy my groceries on uh, on my credit card and I get these points, once I pass a certain point threshold, my credit card company, in quotes, gives me $50. So why wouldn't I indulge in such a shopping behavior? Well, and that's a good point. If you're that person who is very strategic in terms of what they purchase, ensuring that they always pay their balance in full before their statement date, so they're not incurring costly interest charges. The problem, though, is that with a credit card and loyalty points, what it does, it encourages you to spend more because you're getting something back. Right. And if you were to sit back and look at saying, if I didn't have this credit card, would my behaviors be different? Would I be buying less expensive things? Would I be avoiding some things? Because I wouldn't be concerned about getting some points back. And what is, what's the true value of those points? How much do I have to spend before I get that? As an example, Sterling, I see this loyalty program at one of the grocery stores I shop at, and their flyers this week, it said, buy, buy four of any of these regular-priced items, and you get 300 points. Right. The value of those 300 points, about $3. Mm-hmm. And you're paying the full hit on those four items that are expensive. So you really have to question who's winning here. It's the credit card companies. It's the retailers. It's not the consumer. So back to the headline in the Glacier Papers, Scott. Anxiety levels rising as more British Columbians pay only minimum credit card balances. That keeps the account alive and active. It keeps your card useful to you. And yet you're not doing much other than just basic maintenance. How dangerous is that? Well, the the reality is if you only pay the minimum, you may never get out of debt. However, if you were just to pay that minimum payment and not pay the slightly smaller payment amount next month and the slightly smaller the month following, you would slowly get out of debt. And that's the problem with, with the variable interest rate debt, like a credit card, versus having a loan that has a very definitive start date and end date. Right. So it's so critical for the individual who's been using a credit card like that, saying, I need to change. Credit cards are never meant to carry long-term debt. So if you want to improve your financial picture, you've got to get out of this high interest rate debt. And it takes time and effort. And yes, sacrifices need to be made. But if you don't make them, you could end up 20, 30 years down the road and still in debt. Mm-hmm. And we know, for example, the Bank of Canada is quite likely, Scott, to raise interest rates again in just a very few days. It's not going to be as high a, a boost as it has been in the past, but still up she goes. And that just makes uh, it, it, it makes carrying debt that much more expensive. Well, and for consumers who have a variable rate mortgage, and then playing that game, what happens now, it means you're paying more on a mortgage. So it has to come from somewhere. And so a person really has to go, can I cut my costs? Can I find a way of increasing my, my income coming into my household to manage this? And really for people with those variable rate mortgages, and that's the biggest worry for most people, how do I afford my house payment or my rent payment? Yeah. You've got to get rid of your non-mortgage debt. You've got to say, I, I have to have a plan to eliminate this. So whether it's coming to an organization like ours to talk about this, are going to your bank to consolidate your existing consumer debt at a much lower uh, interest rate with a definitive um, uh, end date, and maybe four or five years down the road, but it's be finished. You've got to have a plan to get rid of that. You solve that, 
your life becomes a lot easier to manage. Well, it's about the plan now, isn't it? Because a lot of people, you know, get to the point where you start to feel the, 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 the ground slipping out from underneath you. It's literally at the top of that slippery slope. And rather than addressing the problem, uh, they turn away and, and try to basically ignore it away. And all that does is compound it, right? It does. And for a lot of people who are using their credit cards right now just to top up because they're running short, it's a mistake. You're, just gonna, you're, you're gonna be paying an awful lot of money for those groceries you're buying right today. So if you're paying it on the never never plan, you're adding as much as 50% on top of the purchase price of your groceries. So it's so critical for this year. If you're ever gonna have a resolution, it's to make your budget your best friend. So I'm looking at some numbers from uh, Ipsos, the polling company, and they say 44% of British Columbians say we are close to insolvency, which is defined as being 200 bucks or less from not being able to meet financial obligations. That's an enormous segment of the population, Scott. It's a, it is an enormous amount, but for a lot of people, it's because they, they don't fully understand their circumstances. So on the surface, it may look like I'm only $200 away from uh, insolvency because I haven't taken the time to really sit back and look at my entire picture of what I can do. And that's the problem we see with many people coming into our organization is that they're worried about, I can't do this. When after speaking with a counselor and really understanding the situation, making some changes, they can see a way out of this. Unfortunately, it's really difficult when you're stuck in the storm right now because you're just trying to keep your head above water as opposed to stepping back and looking at the big picture, taking a longer-term perspective. How do I get, get over this? What changes do I need to make? And some changes are going to be harder than others, no question about it. But if you don't make changes now, it just gets worse later. Right, and communication is a key here, not only with communicating with an, an, an organization like yours, the Credit Counseling Society, or an insolvency trustee, or some professional. Uh, it, it also, it's the matter of communicating with people you owe money to. You can't put them on ignore and expect nothing to happen. If you open the door, uh, chances are they're going to want to work something out, right? No question. If you've been a good customer for years, they want to retain you as a good customer. And if you're coming to them, you're being proactive, while you're still in good shape with them, they're going to help you find a solution that works for you. The question you have to look at is saying, is this in my best interest or is this in their best interest? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes they may say, well, we can do this, but we may need to have a co-signer because of the amount of the debt. Or we may need to take this debt and attach it to your home as a, for security. So you really need to look at that from the perspective, is this the best thing for me? And that's why I strongly encourage people to get a second opinion first before you take action. Because the steps you make today are going to have a lasting impact on you for a period of time. Yeah. So take the right steps. And, and a final point, and it's always good to have you on the show, Scott. We do appreciate your joining us. The final point is this is the matter of shame. Uh, to be indebted, to be sinking below the water line is to have mismanaged somehow. And there's no glory in that. And in fact, a lot of people feel failure and shame. And they don't want to approach a professional like you because they don't want a sermon. They want help. Well, that's, and that's the, the problem. People feel like they're going to get a sermon, which they don't. You know, each month when I have my, my town hall meeting with my staff, I read a client comment. And the one that uh, topped the list last month was from a client says, you know, we came to you five years ago in shame over our circumstances. And here we are now paying off our, paying off our debt that I thought we never could. And through your help, in addition, it also, which is very timely for the today's question, sure. is it helped us become sober. 
Ah, interesting stuff. Scott, because of the stress. That's right, of course, and stress does remarkably awful things to people. It really does. Uh, you can find out more about Scott's organization, the Credit Counseling Society, at their website, nomoredebts.org. One word, nomoredebts, plural, dot org. Scott Hanna, thanks for this. Always a pleasure, sir. We do appreciate it. Take care, Sterling. Bye yeah. for now. And it is time to welcome Alex Vesna back to our program. Alex is president of Prepared Corporation and a prophet at York University and the author of a column uh, that we uh, caught our attention a few days ago in the National Post or in the Post Media Papers, Decriminalizing Impaired Driving could reduce it. And he refers specifically to something he came across here in British Columbia. Alex Vesna, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Happy to be back. Well, it's good to have you with us, Alex. Uh, how did you stumble across this uh, the BC policy, which, of course, we call immediate roadside prohibition? Um, I actually forget how I stumbled across it. I think it was uh, it was in a conversation I was having with some colleagues about um, the uh, in, in public in public safety and emergency preparedness. You have a uh, you usually have. Uh, either uh, you can make things uh, safer or uh, and, and less free, or free and less safer. And every now and then you have things where you t- you kind of have a win on both, or you have a win on one where it doesn't really hurt the other so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were discussing something involving that, and then the example came up, and I went, "Really?" And then someone said, "Yeah." And uh, 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 Matt actually agrees with it, and I went, "Really?" Uh, because that uh, when, when you when you look at the policy on its face, uh, you, you would assume that there's no way, and then you hear that, and it becomes really interesting. Well, when so mothers was, against dry, drunk driving rather have a rather uh, s- a long record, Alex, of uh, being very hard line uh, on drunk drivers and yeah. very, very unforgiving when it comes to that behavior. So when uh, when you found out that they in fact support this whole business of immediate roadside prohibitions here in British Columbia. That was a surprise, was it? Because it doesn't seem as as harsh as other jurisdictions, does it? Well, well, there's that, but I, I wouldn't even say that they're um, they're 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 as hard line against, um, uh, in, in my experience, against um, the people. But they're just very, very pro public safety. Right. They're very. They they really, really, really want to reduce death. Um, which I mean, I, most people are for reducing death, I would argue, but uh, but yeah, no. So it's it, it was really interesting. So it, it became an immediate. I wonder what studies have been done on this and et cetera, and mm-hmm. into it. And I went, well, this is actually really interesting stuff. So uh, let's yeah. let's review very quickly because I mean we we live with this all the time. We've just been through the Christmas holidays, so we're all, we've all been reminded recently here in BC, Alex, exactly what happened. We had a criminal defense lawyer on this show, uh, Kyla Lee, just a few weeks ago, reminding us. Of, and Kyla's first advice was, uh, if ever you're in a situation where you're requested to take a test, take the Blinken test. You're going to get into a lot more trouble by refusing to take the test than whatever happens to you after you take it. So that's that's rule one. But the test happens at the roadside, a breathalyzer test with an approved screening device. And if the test results in a warn or a fail, if you blow past the line, your license gets immediately taken away. You get an immediate prohibition on driving. There will be a fine and suspension, possibly, certainly points on your license in addition to cash. And your vehicle can be immediately impounded. But what you will go on to add typically does not happen is the laying of a criminal charge resulting in a court case. And you did a little homework on that. Why? 
Uh, sorry, I, what do you mean? What do you mean by why? Why is there no uh, laying of a? That's oh, right. Oh, you're, you're, sorry, you're asking. The re- about the, yeah, the, the reason court. behind the yeah, decision court, not yeah. to go after them in court, and and right, 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 right. it's a two-way street there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, right. So there, there's actually a lot of reasons for why, uh, which is which is what's so interesting about this, uh, especially as someone who doesn't live in British Columbia, looking in on on this policy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's the so t- from each of the perspectives. From the perspective of the uh, of the impaired driver, um, when people are um, given uh, the risk of a criminal record, they're they tend to be more focused on fighting the 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 ca- fighting the case or fighting the charge and and not getting the criminal record than they are on addressing their behavior and being remorseful. Right. Than if there isn't a risk of a criminal record, where they just they're focused on the remorseful aspect. So psychologically, from their perspective, um, it's 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 better for them, from their perspective, in most cases, what I've, from what I've seen in the research, um, to not have to have the risk of a criminal record. They prefer, actually, the administrative charges. So that's interesting. Um, from the perspective of public safety, uh, there has been quite a few years now of evidence uh, from, from your province and from a few other places around the world where uh, the, the all, every metric... That I that I can see that it, that has been measured, um, deaths due to impaired driving, uh, reoffense rates, uh, damages to property have 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 been trending downwards. So indeed, uh, when this is sorry, and, and the benefit or the bonus, uh, and, and it really is almost a secondary thing. But by opting to be remorseful about your behavior and not pursuing the criminal uh, approach or the court approach, you're also reducing the amount of activity in the courts on this particular matter, too, aren't you? Yeah, and I was gonna, I was going to get there too. That's actually um, it, for some for some jurisdictions, that's actually more important than the other mm-hmm. because the reality is that when the courts are bogged down. Um, it's it's not really a zero sum game, but you have limited resources. So there are other things that are more uh, heinous that you can't really try uh, because they people are sitting in uh, in, in, in jails waiting to uh, get their court date. Mm-hmm. Which, if you take some load off of the court system, uh, can can alleviate. So there's just there's just wins everywhere. It appears it appears that the police like it, the courts like it. The impaired drivers like it. The Mothers Against Drunk Driving likes it. Um, arguably, I would say the taxpayer likes it because <laughs> you're not talking down the courts as much. Right. Um, every now and then, public safety just kind of gets a win, which is I, which I personally, because usually these issues are fairly contentious, um, is kind of cool. And now there are some people who don't prefer it as much, and I know that the issues around um, constitutionality have come up, and it's already gone through um, British Columbia Supreme Court over this. But uh, from what I can understand about the situation, if you really wanted to contest the uh, the administrative um, uh, sanctions or the administ- not the sanctions the administrative um, no no that's right no the administrative sanctions uh, uh, around this you could legally. So I I mean I don't I, I'm I'm also I don't think there's that many constitutional issues around it anyway. Mm-hmm. And there's good so, evidence uh, that it works, right, in terms yeah, of just reduction yeah. overall in terms of fatal uh, fatalities in alcohol-related accidents. There is evidence to support that, isn't there? Oh, there's substantial. Well, it's not even small evidence. There's, you know, there's 10 years of it. And even in the first year, is there's something like 30% reduction in deaths. Like, the numbers are astonishing. Like it, it's it's real it's a really really interesting case. I'm I'm very happy that British Columbia tends to put its tends tends to risk itself and try these ideas. 
um, for the rest of the country and the planet because every now and then, because you guys do tend to be a bit faster than everybody else on a lot of this stuff, um, it's, uh, you come up with something really cool that just works. All right. It's, it's uh, really interesting. Our question of the day, and I've got 30 seconds and that's it, but I'd love yeah. you to play with us on this one. Will warning labels on alcohol change your drinking habits? Uh, well, uh, no, because uh, I actually don't drink alcohol. <laughs> oh, well, okay. You're an easy case study, aren't you? Um, it might it might change my buying habits because uh, a bunch of people that I uh, I know I know some family members in particular that probably won't be uh, purchasing as much alcohol with warning labels. Interesting, Alex. Always a pleasure. Thanks ever so much for doing this. We'll talk again. Maybe maybe next time about lies, damned lies, and statistics. That was a good one too. Oh, I thought you'd like that one. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that I did. Fun. That was a fun one to write. But thanks for this, and thanks for reminding British Columbians of what we've got going on that's working that other Canadians are envious of. Thanks for that very much. Well, you know what? We should all learn from each other. Alex, happy to be back again. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.